Welcome to the Disability Sport Info Show, the podcast that explores academic knowledge about disability sport. My name is Dr. Chris Brown, and I'm an academic with an expertise in disability sport. Each episode, I focus on a specific topic of disability sport and speak to academic experts to understand the area in more depth. So join me and listen to the Disability Sport Info Show to get an expert view on disability sport. Hi, listener. I hope you're well. Thank you for joining me today. The aim of this episode is to provide a foundational basis for understanding the physical activity and sport participation of disabled people. We will cover topics such as the benefits of physical activity and sport participation, understand some of the challenges that are involved, what promotional strategies have been used to highlight the importance of physical activity and sport participation, and finally, look at what needs to be done to ensure that we have a more robust and adequate data set and knowledge base from which to understand physical activity and sport participation. To help us understand this area, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Kathleen Martin-Guinness to the show. Welcome Kathleen, thank you for joining me today. Based on the literature and your own understanding, to what extent do disabled people participate in physical activity and sport participation? Well, first of all, Chris, let me thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Physical activity participation for people with living with disabilities is very difficult There are many barriers, and as a result, participation levels are very low. Unfortunately, we have lousy evidence data with regards to actual participation rate worldwide of people living with disabilities, but it's estimated that people living with disabilities are up to 70% less likely to meet physical activity guidelines than people living without disabilities. What about from a global perspective? How does that differ depending where you are located in the world? Right. So another great question for which we have lousy data. I think perhaps so the best data that we could use to maybe get at that question is to look at rates of participation in Paralympic and other worldwide disability sport events. If we look at those rates of participation across the globe, we see that participation rates are greatest among high income countries and very low to non-existent in the low and middle income countries. And while sport is quite different from physical activity participation in general, I think that those participation rates in those types of games, the Deaflympics, the Paralympics, Invictus, and so on, I think that does give us an indication that as poor as participation rates may be in high-income countries, for which we've got just a little bit of data, they're probably that much lower and that much poorer in the low and middle income countries for which we have virtually no data. You've mentioned there's a paucity of data that exists. Why is that then? What's the reasoning for this? This is something I'm I'm quite passionate about. There are a few reasons why for the general population, we have worldwide global data on physical activity participation, but specifically for people with disabilities, we don't. One of those reasons is that in many of the data sets, when people are being recruited in the general population for these epidemiological data sets, people are excluded if they have some type of disability. The other reason is that even if people are included with a disability, there are not standardized measures of disability in those data sets that would allow us to identify and categorize 
people with disabilities and to segregate and and separate the data for people with versus without disabilities. So those are the two main reasons. It's not for the lack of people with disabilities in the world. It's because the tools that we're using uh, and the approaches that are being used to bring people into data sets aren't capturing or identifying the data from people with disabilities. Okay, thank you. So we've talked about global perspectives and our understanding of participation trends across the world. What about for other key variables, such as the nature of the impairment, age, gender, ethnicity, sexuality? Do we have data on this? Based on what you've said so far, I'm guessing probably not. But what are your thoughts about this? Great question. There's probably five data sets in the world that have data on physical activity for people with disabilities. So very minimal data. And the one trend that we do see is males tend to be more physically active than females, which is consistent with what we see in the general population. And that's probably reflective of so many sociocultural factors that influence uh, gender and physical activity participation. I have a, a very good data set with Canadians living with spinal cord injury. And from that data set, we also see trends that mirror general population physical activity levels in Canada, that the older people are, the less likely they are to be physically active. Based on impairment categories, that's also a mystery, unfortunately, that we don't know across the different types of impairments or disabilities, whether there are differences, and there probably are. Intuitively, there probably are some differences. I've seen in my physical activity data set for people's spinal cord injury that it actually depends not so much on level of functional impairment, but on the type of mobility device a person uses. So that might be something that would carry over to other types of mobility impairments other than spinal cord injury. But when it comes to the the sensory impairments or cognitive or mental health impairments, we don't yet have any good data comparing across those groups or looking for demographic variables that might relate to physical activity within those groups. It's frustrating we don't have this data available, or at least the granularity of data to really understand this topic area. In England, we do have the active lives data. It's comprehensive but there are still some challenges with the data for disability. What we do know from the Active Life Survey is that individuals with a hearing impairment or visual impairment participate in sport and physical activity less than those with a physical impairment. Is that something you think might play out when viewing physical activity and sport participation in a broader geographical context? so hard to say. And you're right, you have great data. So the UK, the Netherlands and the US are the big data sets for people with disabilities. Is it something I think carries it out? I really hate to say because, you know, even within impairment groups, no two impairments are the same right? If you're talking about people who have hearing impairment or who are deaf, we've seen variability within those groups. I have a colleague who has some data with people with hearing impairments, but just to group people based on impairments and compare them with one another, I don't think that's a fair representation of those groups because of Mm. the different levels of impairment within those groups. So I really hope we get some data on this and it will help us identify the groups where particular efforts are needed to boost physical activity. But uh, I I wouldn't want to hedge hedge a guess at this point we also have individuals who have multiple impairments of course so they're not just located in one specific group and that then makes it more tricky and adds more complexity in trying to compare across impairment groups of course 
That's it. And when you start thinking about intersectionality as well, that people from different exactly. ethnic groups, we've talked about gender as a moderating factor of physical activity. So when, when you pull in all the socioeconomic status, all the other factors that are related to activity, there are a whole host of factors that I think would make a difference. So we've discussed from the available data that we have, some trends and what the data is suggesting about physical activity and sport participation. What about benefits to participation in sport, physical activity. What does the literature suggest about the benefits that disabled people can derive from being physically active or participating in sport? Well, people with disabilities can certainly derive the exact same benefits from physical activity as people without. There's a reduced risk of chronic disease. There's mental health benefits. We know even with people with disabilities, there might even be economic benefits insofar as reducing hospitalizations and the costs associated with that. If you look at the evidence, again, it, it's minimal. Everything that I say should be couched within the recognition that there's not a lot of data. But ha so having said that, there is some data even to suggest that for people with physical disabilities, for example, those who are physically active might be more likely to be employed. It's hard to say which direction that relationship goes, but I know some people in the circles I work with that for people with physical disabilities, getting people involved in a physical activity program can strengthen, not just strengthen the body, but strengthen social self-confidence, uh, self-confidence to, to go out into the world. Uh, and that in turn might have knock-on effects for employment. So I think right across the board, we see that physical activity has physical, psychological, social, and even economic benefits for people living with disabilities. And as you said, it's always context dependent. And obviously, you know, we don't have huge amounts of data that exists, so we've got to bear that in mind. Okay, so we know the benefits and there seems to be a lot. So what about challenges that might exist to providing sport or physical activity opportunities for disabled people? What kind of challenges might exist? Well, I think anyone uh, living with a disability or not who has ever tried to start an exercise program or take up a new sport knows how difficult it is not just to get started, but also to stick with it. All the barriers that people without disabilities face People living with disabilities have that many more barriers. My team and I, we did a review a few years ago. We also uh, updated it for the Lancet paper and identified over 200 barriers that people with disabilities might face in becoming physically active. Those barriers, you know, they're, they're at all levels of society. Some, some of them rest within the individual. So there's the impairment itself. There might be a lack of confidence. There might be fear about being physically active. But then as you move from the individual to the next layer, to their social group, they, there may be people who have negative stereotypes towards people with disabilities and don't believe they should be in a gym exercising. There might be discouragement from family. There might be a lack of peer support at the next level. We know that there's a, just a lack of information available for how people can get started and lack of accessible facilities. And when people, I've heard so many discouraging stories about people with disabilities going to a fitness center, you know, they, they're ready to go and they get to the fitness center and they're turned away because the fitness center employees say, I don't know what to do with you. It, it, it's infuriating, but that lack of information and insulting, let me also say that. 
at that level, there's problems. And then even at sort of the, the broader societal layer of policymaking, that policies that limit accessibility through the absence of sidewalks that are built in a community or the lack of parking spots at a gym or uh, that require uh, fees for community programs to start a new sport. So you start layering these on. And for a person with disability in Canada and in many other countries, if you have a disability, you're more likely to live in poverty. So, you know, layer on the, the economic challenges and this whole host of barriers. And for many people, they're insurmountable. And it shouldn't be up to individuals to overcome these barriers that we should be doing more as a society to facilitate physical activity and to remove these barriers for for people with disabilities. Yeah, it sounds like a complex web of barriers, multiple constraints in different areas of an individual's life. So it could be the individual themselves, society, organizational, economic, transport, etc. Okay, that's not good, but we do know about the benefits. We know the effects that sport and physical activity can have. So what strategies are used to promote the importance of physical activity and sport participation from your understanding of the literature? So I love when people ask me this question. I, I teach health psychology and exercise psychology. And I always tell my students, you know, information is not enough. If all we had to do is give people information about physical activity, everyone would be physically active because, you know, if there's lots of information, people should be doing it. But when it comes to physical activity and disability, there still isn't enough basic information. And it frustrates me that I still need to say that uh, because information isn't enough, but it's, it's a key starting point. And we don't even have the information getting into the hands of people who need it. An important starting point for physical activity is physical activity guidelines, something that I've, I've written and, and done a, a lot of uh, development and, and promotion of. When we have a sort of standardized guideline or recommendation for physical activity, that starts things in motion. That conveys to people, okay, th this amount should be safe for me. This is what I need to do. It then conveys to gyms and facilities, oh, okay, this is a healthy amount of activity that I should be encouraging people to do when they, they come in the front door of our gym. For people with disabilities, we have very uh, limited evidence-based guidelines uh, based on evidence from people with disabilities that can form safe, meaningful, effective prescriptions for people with disabilities to go and enact in their communities, in their gyms, in their, their leisure centers. So I think that's, that's the starting point. From there, it, the challenge becomes once you raise awareness of what's needed and, and uh, give people some direction, I think then the, the next strategy is pointing people to where they can be active, how to start overcoming barriers, and then information guided towards society to start targeting all those external barriers that need to be alleviated to facilitate physical activity. I could talk about this for hours because there is so much work to do. Uh, we are, are starting to scratch the surface in terms of the types of communications that are needed for people with disabilities. Uh, I think it's important to impress it's something we talked about a few minutes ago that no group of people with disabilities are the same. Like we talk about people with disabilities, of course, it's not one homogeneous group of people as people with different impairments, different lives. We talked about intersectionality and to try and suggest that one set of guidelines or one set of information is going to be effective for people with all disabilities. Like that's, that's ludicrous. It's, it's not the case. 
that's also the reason why we need so much work is that targeted information is best. People need to know that the information they're receiving really is meant for them, that it wasn't created from the general population. And oh, we're just going to slide this over to you. People need to know it's for them in order to have confidence in acting on it. And that's where we still have a long way to go. Excellent point. I mean, disability is more of a labeling mechanism uh, rather than necessarily representing people's characteristics or traits or anything like that. For example, you know, you referred to some with visual impairment, some with a visual impairment, their life experiences are going to be very, very different from that of an individual with intellectual impairment, for example, very different life experiences. Even if you're from the same impairment group, if you're born with an impairment versus if you've acquired an impairment, again, your life experiences could be very different. So I think what you were saying really highlights the importance of co-design and co-creation, not just imposing viewpoints from the top down to the bottom. You know, actually ask the population group. It's very basic, but it is surprising how it happens quite often that there is this set of ideas or policies or narratives from the top, which is then imposed to the bottom without consulting with the population group that you're actually trying to target. It is so basic, Chris. It still staggers me to think that there are people who believe that you should not engage the people who are actually going to use guidelines or use information, that they shouldn't shouldn't or don't need to have a say in the creation of those resources. On a human level, it's disrespectful. As a scientist, you will never have the impact in the groups you are working with, whether you're trying to impact physical activity or sport participation or health or what have you. You're never going to have the impact with that population unless you have engaged that population from the get-go to really understand their values, needs, and preferences. I use the term buy-in, but you know that that sense that to to have that group invested with you in what you're doing from a scientist, you're never going to have the impact that you want unless you have that that co-creation process. And I, I'd like to think that most scientists do want to make an impact with their research, and that is one of the most effective ways to do it is to work with the people that you want to have impact with. Yeah, it shouldn't be a surprise or a highlight of the conversation. You know, so you say, hey, engage with uh, the population you're trying to make a difference with. That shouldn't be a highlight. Okay, so we we understand the logic behind why you should speak to your population group and why that is a basic but really important philosophy, trying to provide authentic and rich experiences for your population group. So why isn't it happening as often as it should be then? Why are some promotional campaigns not involving co-creation or co-design? Is it because this message hasn't registered with policymakers or relevant organizations? Is it to ableism? What reasons might potentially explain why this is not happening as, a, as frequently as it should be? Yeah, that's that's a complex question. I think it, it there's a few <laughs> things going on. Some of this is based on literature and some of this is just based on things that I've seen in terms of developing resources for physical activity in general and for people with disabilities. So one thing is that sort of the traditional route by which advertising has been effective in general. Advertising is often effective by through shock or through surprise. The techniques that we use to advertise a product by making people aware of a new pair of running shoes or a, a new food is to like, oh, really get their attention and, and wow, and put it in their brain. 
But those techniques aren't the same thing that you want to use to promote physical activity. So telling people how lazy a particular group is or how we're all at risk for poor health, that doesn't excite us to be physically active. It depresses people. It it doesn't tell them what they need to to do next. So there's that. There's the traditional methods for advertising have sometimes been applied to promote physical activity to the general population as well as to people with disabilities, and they just don't apply. For the people who are using evidence to try and create uh, physical activity promotional strategies, believe it or not, I think in some cases there's fear of going and speaking to people with disabilities that people are afraid they're going to say the wrong thing or they're they're not going to know how to engage. So I think there's some social anxiety there. I think there is some arrogance. I've heard that from scientists as well, that honestly, I've heard scientists say, well, what could they tell me that I don't already know? There is still, unfortunately, a lot of that arrogance. And it also takes a lot of time, that co-creation and co-engagement. Sure, that's going to take you a lot more time to go and meet with people, find out what they need, what do they think, to work with them on developing something, to pilot test it, than just going down to your lab and squirreling away and coming up with something and sending it out to the world. But you know what? That co-creation, not only does it have the impact, but there's, there's a satisfaction that comes from sitting down and talking with people and learning what they value. I, I have never learned so much in my career as when I started doing all of my research through uh, community engagement or, or co-creation. That's uh, you know when my learning really skyrocketed because for everything that we can learn um, in little lab experiments or through books or through reading you can never uh, match that learning with going out and speaking to people with lived experiences of trying to start a sport, participating in a sport, going to the gym. It does take more time, but the end product is just that much better. Excellent point. Yeah, I can't really add anything else to that. It summarized really well. Okay, so I think to conclude, let's look to the future. Where are there currently gaps in our understanding and our knowledge in this particular area? So based on your expertise, what should researchers, what should people working in this area look to try and do to fill in the gaps in our knowledge and understanding? So anybody who's doing any epidemiological research on physical activity, even if your interest is not in disability, you should be incorporating even a basic assessment, a basic item to see if people identify as a person with a disability or an impairment in order to capture those data and to be able to separate it out of data sets to start giving us good data on physical activity levels of people with disabilities. We also need data on physical activity and how it can mitigate the risk for chronic disease in people with disabilities. Same thing. We have big data sets that look at that, but we don't know the impairment or disability status of people in those data sets. And given some of the intersectionality issues we've talked about, we need to know if the same amount of physical activity that's recommended to people without disabilities, if that same amount performed by people with disabilities can still mitigate the risk for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity. We don't know that yet. So I think those are two simple ways where we can expand the data and knowledge is just by measuring disability in the data sets, let alone by incorporating inclusive design in research so that scientists strategically and deliberately recruit people with disabilities into their studies. And we can begin doing randomized controlled trials and other experiments with adequate samples of people with disabilities to look at the effects of exercise on psychological, physical health, and and other social and economic outcomes. 
Great. Thank you, Kathleen. I think that's a nice way to end, looking to the future. And hopefully anyone listening to this will be able to take on that advice and fill in the knowledge gaps that we currently have. So thank you, Kathleen, for speaking to me today and for enlightening our listeners with your expertise and insight in this particular area. It's been really great chatting to you today, and I'm really looking forward to catching up with you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Chris. That's all we have time for, listener. So thank you for listening to this Disability Sport Info episode, and I hope you've learned more about physical activity and sport participation for disabled people. Stay tuned for the next episode. Until then, goodbye. You've been listening to the Disability Sport Info Show, academic insights into disability sport.